Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Institute of All Politics. My name is Dr. Amanda Wan, and I'm the director of the China Asia program here at IWP. For those who are new to IWP, we're, we are an independent graduate school of national security, intelligence, and international affairs. Uh, we have a doctor of statecraft and national security program, which I graduated from last year. And we have seven master's programs, um, including two online MAs and 18 certificates of graduate study, as well as a continuing education program. So if you're interested in learning more about our academic programs, please feel free to come speak to me at the conclusion of the event, and I'll be more than happy to uh, help you get connected with one of our recruiters. And also, if you'd like to support the work of IWP, please go to iwp.edu backslash donate. And today's event is part of the China Asia programs um, Asia Initiative Lecture Series, which I founded back in uh, 2019 when I just began the doctoral program here. And today we have Dr. Gordon Rudd, um, who will give a lecture on the topic of uh, the structure of Indo-PACOM and US, comparable US agencies uh, for, for the Asia Pacific region. Dr. Gordon Rudd has served as Professor of Strategic Studies, U.S. Marine School of Advanced Warfighting, which is also known as SAW, uh, since January 1998. Prior to working with SAW, he spent two years as a Professor of Strategic Studies with the U.S. Marine Command and Staff College. From 2003 to uh, 2004, he was detached for nine months to serve as field historian in Iraq with Office of Reconstruction and Humanitarian Assistance and the Coalition Provisional Authority. Earlier in his career from 1972 to 1995, Dr. Rod served as an infantry officer in the U.S. Army. He has had troop service in infantry, airborne, and special forces formations. He has served as a joint service officer and foreign area officer. Overseas assignments include Panama, Lebanon, Israel, Korea, Bosnia, and Turkey. In addition to his full-time teaching, Dr. Rod has taught military history courses at the Darden School of Business of U University of Virginia and for the Virginia Tech Corps of Cadets. While at SAW, he has taught classes at the Marine the Expeditionary Warfare School, uh, the Marine Command and Staff College, and the Marine Corps War College. Dr. Rod is the author of two books, Humanitarian Intervention, Assisting the Iraqi Kurds in Operation Provide Comfort and Reconstructing Iraq, Regime Change, Jay Garner, and the ORHA story. Additionally, Dr. Rudd's uh, current research interests include military history, particularly World War II, and uh, comparative politics and regional studies. So with that, please join me in welcoming Dr. Rudd for his lecture. Our topic uh, today is Indo-PACOM. I'd like to emphasize that the word Indo on Indo-PACOM is fairly recent. PACOM, Pacific uh, Command, has been around since 1947, arguably before that, uh, depending on, uh, on what terms you want to use. So some of the slides and some of the maps I will have may not have the Indo on Indo-PACOM, uh, but it's the same area, and in some respects, it's uh, the same phenomenon. So the Indo on Indo-PACOM is fairly recent. I'd also like to emphasize that uh, my work is really in the field of history and not so much in the uh, realm of political science, although both realms certainly over overlap. My interest in Indo-PACOM is the evolution that uh, it has behind it in terms of the history, the structure, and I would suggest the baggage because all organizations have a little bit of baggage and it's one, that's one of the things, and I don't necessarily mean that in a bad way, uh, but it does create a sort of a component in an organization that's not necessarily overt if you look at it only in the contemporary period. So I'll point out a couple of things that led to uh, some of the uh, sort of the general aspects that in Indo-PACOM has in it today that may not be quite as overt as uh, some of the structure allows. 
I use a lot of line diagrams. Um, the, the, they bore a lot of people, uh, but I'll try to make them become functional for your purposes uh, because I'm interested in force structure. And uh, the reason I use line diagrams is when we're talking about an organization, I'd like to get all the pieces of the organization on one page so you can see them. And then in some respects, the line diagram tells you who works for who or who's responsible for who. So there's, there's some utility in that. I also use a lot of maps because if we're talking about uh, geographic areas, then the more illustrations that you have on the geographic areas, the more useful. So the slide that you're looking at right now is a fairly contemporary slide, came off the internet. This shows you in general what Indo-PACOM looks like uh, with respect to uh, its, its area of responsibility. So it's, it's virtually all of, uh, all of the Pacific except the Pacific right adjacent to South America. It's uh, about half of the Indian Ocean, which it shares with several other co uh, commands. And more recently, it's included China. Uh, prior to that, it, it included the area right up to China, but not in, uh, including China. And of course, in many respects, the primary focus of Indo-PACOM in terms of a potential threat or potential adversary is focused on China with a particular interest in what we refer to as the South China Sea, first and second, and in some respects, the third island cha chain. And I'll try to get to that later. But what I'd really like to talk about is uh, how this fits in uh, with other things. So you can see Indo-PACOM is what we call today a U.S. Uh, combatant command. Uh, in an earlier period, we referred to these as unified commands. Um, and it's still a unified command, but the contemporary term is combatant command. We have uh, seven, counting SpaceCom, geographic commands. We have four functional commands, and you can see these on, on the chart. And I can talk to some of these in, in Q&A if you're interested uh, to the degree that there is interest, uh, but our particular focus is uh, Indo-PACOM. And of course, that is clearly one of the geographic commands because it has it's responsible for area. Um, it has functions within that, like the functional commands, but it is responsible for a geographic area. That doesn't mean it owns the area because uh, there's a lot of sovereign states uh, within the Indo-PACOM area. And uh, sometimes people think, and sometimes you'll hear a commander think, my region. Uh, well, it's his region to the degree that we're allowed to operate in that region. Um, so in some respects, um, it's, it's the area for which a commander is responsible that's not quite the same as an area that he owns and he has full uh, discretion to, to do as he will. Uh, this shows you the geographic commands, uh, and you can see Indo-PACOM, uh, and here again, it's, it's not listed as Indo-PACOM, but it certainly includes India, and you can see that on the map. You can see the other geographic commands, uh, NORTHCOM, which is essentially uh, uh, Mexico, uh, the United States, and, and Canada. Uh, you have SOUTHCOM, which is the rest of Central America and South America. You have Afri uh, AFRICOM, which is most of Africa minus e Egypt. You have CENTCOM, which is Egypt, the Middle East, and uh, Afghanistan, and, and, and a couple of the other stands. Uh, you have U.S. UCOM, which is essentially, you used to think of UCOM as Western Europe. Uh, and then it became most of Europe as the wall came down. And then uh, somewhat later, it was formally uh, directed to account for uh, Russia. At an earlier period, that would have been the Soviet Union, of course. Okay. Okay, so what I'd like to do is go back in history. Um, so the United States develops an interest in the Pacific functionally with the Mexican War. Uh, when at the end of the Mexican War, we take over or inherit, as you, as you will, essentially California and, and subsequently the Northwest, which would include the Oregon Territory, subsequently broken down into Oregon and, and uh, Washington State. And that gave us a Pacific focus. But the main issue during much of the 19th century was just getting to the West Coast, not so much using the West Coast. Um, that starts to change as the 
nature of our Navy shifts from sail to steam. And uh, the challenge of steam is your legs are reduced and you have to have coaling stations. We start to seek islands uh, where we can and we actually pick up a few islands uh, before the Spanish-American War and primarily for coaling stations. And you can see those here. Uh, with the Spanish-American War, we pick up a major interest in the Pacific. And uh, that is the dominant component, of course, is the Philippines. We pick up Guam, Wake, Johnson Atoll, uh, uh, a couple of other islands, um, and, and not directly uh, part of the Spanish-American War, but something that was brewing for some time is we formally uh, integrated Hawaii as a territory, not to become a state for some time. And of course, subsequently to that, we picked up uh, control of the Panama Canal and built the Panama, well, we picked up control of a slice of Panama, then we built the uh, Panama Canal and then we kept that for the better part of about 75 years. Um, and of course, uh, the other part of uh, uh, the Spanish-American Wars, we, for about a, a decade, we had control of Cuba. Uh, we did not choose to, to keep that, and Cuba wanted to be independent, went a different route. We did keep uh, Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands. But if you go back to the Pacific, you can see that after the Spanish-American War, we are invested in the Pacific. And uh, actually, I, I probably should have drawn a couple of circles in China because we start to uh, have excursions into China, and we compete with other Western countries to control certain parts of China. Okay. Okay. To defend this, in the period before World War II, we set up what we refer to as the triangular defense, and that was based around Hawaii, uh, Alaska, and the Canal Zone. Okay. At that stage, we really didn't have much in the way of force structure or development in, in Alaska, and arguably the triangular defense zone probably would have been Seattle much more than it would have been Alaska, but uh, formerly it was Alaska. In Hawaii and the Canal Zone, we set up commands called departments uh, under the control of the Army. We actually had a department in the Philippines called the Philippine Department. Each department was essentially a senior two-star command with uh, uh, infantry components, uh, coastal artillery, and then when aircraft became available, a air component in each one of the departments. So there was one in Panama, one in Hawaii, and one in the Philippines. And of course, those were linked in different ways for a larger defense plan. During the period between World War I and World War II, we, we start to perceive Japan, as an adversary, would develop a detailed war plan called War Plan Orange, which goes through all sorts of variants uh, with all sorts of subordinate plans, uh, the Army and the Navy squabbling in some respect and trying to achieve some sort of cohesion for War Plan Orange. Uh, in the process, uh, we actually had to develop a way to account for control of the places we control, like uh, uh, Panama, Hawaii, and the Philippines in particular. Uh, and those had departments, those were under the control of the Army until 1939. 1939, some of the control of that chops to the, uh, our Department of Interior. Uh, but within the Department of Army, most of this was under uh, Army command in terms of securing uh, those locations, again, Panama, Hawaii, and the, and the Philippines, um, and presuming that somebody may attack, and if so, how would we defend it? So there was a defensive plan uh, for each one of those, okay? And of course, um, in 1941, the Japanese attacked. They attacked uh, Pearl Harbor, but in the process, they rolled up much of Asia. One of the most extraordinary um, operations in the course of World War II was what the Japanese were able to do from about the 7th of December uh, through about, uh, I guess it would be April of 1942. Uh, they roll up the, they, of course, hit uh, uh, Hawaii, uh, they take uh, Wake Island, 
they take Guam, uh, they roll up the Philippines, they take the Dutch Indies, which we would call Indonesia today, they roll up most of uh, uh, Malaysia and take Singapore, and they drive British forces out of Burma. An extraordinary operation, uh, actually run on a bit of, of a shoestring, a fraction of the forces that the Germans used for Blitzkrieg to take down France, and uh, uh, really quite a remarkable operation. However, it wasn't done overnight. It took about five months uh, for, the, for the Japanese to do all of that. And in response, the United States and Britain, uh, Australia and, and Holland or the Netherlands put together uh, arguably the first unified command of World War II. That was referred to as ABDA. Uh, that's for America, British, Dutch, and Australia. And you can see the, uh, the outlines of ABDA below. Uh, below. Um, it was a very desperate command. It was only effective for about a month. Uh, and then it functionally fails because virtually everything in it except Northern Australia is overrun by the Japanese. Here's another uh, layout of it that shows you the sort of force structure that was there. Uh, again, you can see the map on the uh, uh, right side of the of the slide, you can see the force structure on the left side. Uh, you might note that to manage ABDA, the United States put together a joint chiefs of staff uh, dominated by uh, Franklin Roosevelt, the president, uh, and the British put together British chiefs of staff uh, with their senior uh, service chiefs under the control of uh, Churchill. Those conceptually formed what we call the Combined Chiefs of Staff. Now, the Con Combined Chiefs of Staff was not really a major organization. It was the JCS and the uh, British Chiefs of Staff sitting together for a series of meetings. Uh, and the, that, in turn, drove the direction for the Unified Command. So ABDA is the first Unified Command. I'll, I'll talk briefly about some of the others. Okay. Now, when... ABDA fails in uh, early February of 1941, and the Allies, meaning the, primarily the British and the Americans, we kind of divide up the world into unified commands. And what we do in the Pacific is we divide it into two unified commands. One is referred to as the Pacific Ocean Areas, plural, under Admiral Nimitz, which has three components. The North Pacific, you can see that, high on the uh, map, the Central Pacific, which is in the center, and the South Pacific. General MacArthur has a smaller area than any of those in the Southwest Pacific, but he has by far the largest land mass within, within that. So MacArthur has most of the land, Admiral Nimitz has most of the water, okay? And those are the, the first two unified commands that we stand up after the failure of ABDA. There will be one, two, three, three more unified commands uh, to come. I'll reference those briefly, but our interest will essentially be those that are in the Pacific, uh, which become the basis for the historical uh, reference for Indo-PACOM. This is the sort of structure that they had underneath. So you see Admiral Nimitz with POA on the right. Uh, he has South Pacific which is actually uh, a formation we start to refer to as a sub-unified command, meaning that it was a unified command, but it was subordinate to another unified command. So POA was the primary unified command. Southern South Pacific was a sub-unified command. And you can also see uh, just to the right of that, Central Pacific and North Pacific. Uh, and so subordinate to that is something that's referred to as Pacific Fleet. So when the war starts, the United States has three fleets. The Atlantic Fleet, which is everything that's in the Atlantic or on our eastern coast or our Gulf, and that's essentially referred to as the Atlantic Fleet. In the Pacific, we had two fleets. The main fleet was Pacific Fleet, and it was based in California uh, when the war starts. Just as the war starts, uh, FDR tells it to move to Hawaii and the Pacific Fleet is then based in Hawaii, where, where arguably it's been ever since, because it's still a key component uh, in Indo-PACOM. Uh, 
MacArthur Swapa uh, moves around a bit. He stands it up initially, briefly in Melbourne, moves it to uh, Brisbane. Um, that becomes his base for a while. He has a forward base at Port Mosby in New Guinea. Uh, starts to shift more and more of his forces to New Guinea. As he fights the New Guinea campaign, he develops another base on the north side, about halfway across, called Hollanda. There wasn't much there uh, when he got there, uh, but they built a base at Hollanda. And then they use that as the base that he will have when he goes into uh, the Philippines, primarily at uh, uh, initially at Leyte and subsequently at Luzon and then rolls up the, the rest of the Philippines. Uh, both of the unified commands have a land component, an air component, and a naval component. The naval component in the POA under Nimitz is by far the strongest because it provides naval forces to MacArthur and takes them back, somewhat to uh, MacArthur's frustration. Uh, so Pacific, so Nimitz wearing the hat of Pacific Fleet Commander, he wears multiple hats, uh, controlled where naval ships went and whose command they, they would be under. As the war progresses in 1943, we developed a large enough Navy that the Navy in the Pacific will be broken down into numbered fleets, uh, in some respects subordinate to Pacific Fleet, in other respects subordinate to either POA or SWAPA. So MacArthur's fleet will essentially be referred to as 7th Fleet under uh, Admiral Kincaid. And you can see that over there on the uh, on the flank, uh, Allied naval forces, which includes Australia, Dutch, and occasionally a New Zealand sh uh, ship, but predominantly American forces, that's really uh, 7th Fleet. Under uh, South Pacific, first Gormley and then Admiral Halsey, that will be 3rd Fleet. And then when he stands up another fleet for the Central Pacific, that will be 5th Fleet under Admiral Spruance. So, this is going to come up again. Third Fleet, Fifth Fleet, Seventh Fleet, all odd numbers. Uh, for reasons that aren't clear to me, um, when Admiral King numbered the fleets, all fleets uh, in the Atlantic or the Mediterranean would be even numbers. All fleets in the Pacific would be odd numbers. So thus we have third, fifth, and seventh. Then and today. You know, they move around a little bit, but they stay in the Pacific or the uh, Indian Ocean. Okay, so here's, uh, this is SWAPA, it's more than you want uh, uh, for our purposes, but it's MacArthur's command. Uh, you can see at the top, uh, if you look just below uh, CCS, you see ABDA over there on, I guess it'd be your left, as, as you're looking at it. Uh, SWAPA stood up, POA's over there on the far side. In the Mediterranean, we stood up a headquarters called uh, Allied For Force Headquarters. Uh, Eisenhower had that uh, in late 1942. He later moved to uh, uh, the UK and stood up the Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Forces, which would be the uh, command that will invade at Normandy. And in the India, Burma, China area, we stood up an organization called Southeast Asia Command. Uh, all of those were unified commands. ABDA was stood up first and it fails. The other five are stood up subsequently, not at the same time, but subsequently, and they all succeed. They all will be standing unified commands at the end of the war in 1945. Try this one. Okay. One of the things I'd like to point out is the way that SWAPA, MacArthur's command, and Nimitz's command use subordinate commands for the air and naval forces. So as the war progresses in 1942, we start taking the air components overseas and we form them into numbered air forces. Um, there will be 16 numbered air forces in the course of the war, four in the continental United States, one through four, uh, 
Fifth Air Force will be the Air Force that starts in the Philippines. It's reconstituted in in, uh, in Australia, and it will fight under MacArthur uh, throughout the Swapa uh, period. The what's referred to as the Hawaiian Air Force before the war becomes the Seventh Air Force. There's an Air Force in the Caribbean that will become the Sixth Air Force. Uh, an Air Force that stood up in Alaska will be the 11th Air Force, and it's still there. Uh, and then subsequently in the South Pacific, we will stand up the 13th Air Force. So those are the four Air Forces that were under MacArthur and Admiral Nimitz during the course of World War II. 13th Air Force is arguably under Admiral Nimitz in 1942, part of 43, and then it chopped uh, to MacArthur and uh, he will have two numbered air forces. Uh, these are large formations. Each one of these formations, except the 11th Air Force, will have close to 2,000 aircraft in it. Just as a reference point, the total number of aircraft in the U.S. Air Force today is ballpark, counting everything that flies, about 7,000 aircraft. So to have 2,000 in, in uh, 5th Air Force, 13th Air Force, uh, and 7th Air Force, 2,000 each, that would be just those three of the 16 numbered air forces uh, in terms of what we fielded uh, in the Pacific. The 11th Air Force in, in Alaska is never quite that large, but it does play an important role. And Alaska's got a lot of territory to, to uh, uh, patrol. And of course, the Japanese took it too in Kiska in 1942, and we took it back in 1943. Thus, we kept a numbered Air Force there for the course of the war. Okay. This is how the Navy's divided up, and I referenced this uh, uh, previously. So when Nimitz starts in the war, there is no unified command because he goes out just after, after uh, uh, Pearl Harbor. And I think he arrives uh, a day or so after Christmas of 1941. The command that he takes is Pacific Fleet, which is essentially everything from the West Coast over uh, into the Pacific uh, that the Navy owns. Um, then he is flagged as a unified commander for P Pacific Ocean areas, which is uh, arguably a senior headquarters. In fact, the two headquarters, POA and PAC Fleet, are the same headquarters. Uh, Nimitz is wearing two hats, and the staff is arguably wearing two hats. Uh, subordinate to that, in 1943, when we break up the Navy components in the Pacific into numbered fleets, the first fleet that Nimitz will control will be third fleet in the South Pacific under Admiral Halsey. Uh, concurrently, MacArthur will stand up a fleet, which uh, initially is half Australian, Dutch, and uh, New Zealand, but it becomes larger with an American fleet. That will become 7th Fleet. Subsequently, in the Central Pacific, we will form a fleet, and that'll be 5th Fleet under Spruance. And uh, Spruance will keep that designation pretty much through the, the course of the war. And those will be the three numbered fleets in the Pacific. We still have those numbered fleets. They've moved around a little bit, and they're part of PACOM. But this is the heritage that they have going into uh, World War II and coming out of World War II, which will be a basis for the sort of the heritage structure that we have today. Okay, this is uh, one of my uh, line diagrams I use with the, uh, my students. We walk the dog on uh, how, to, how does an amphibious force work? How does the carrier force work? Uh, where do the Marines fit in? Where's the Army fit in and, and so forth? One of the things I'd like to point out here is that Nimitz is the first commander at the unified command level to form what we refer to as a joint staff. It's a little bit contrived by, world, uh, by contemporary standards, but was a major advance at the time. So here's a blow up on the staff. The Navy staff, the PAC fleet staff, had five components. F, uh, F, F is for fleet. So uh, Fleet 1 staff is plans, Fleet 2 is intel, Fleet 3 is ops, Fleet 4 is log or logistics, Fleet 5 is aviation. The Army had a uh, somewhat more traditional staff system. It's often referred to as the Napoleonic system, but we actually get it from the French in World War I, not during the period of Napoleon. 
And that's the G staff. So G1 is administration, G2 is Intel, G3 is operations, and G4. These two staffs, the fleet staff and the army staff, were both resident in Hawaii under POA as the war develops and as it proceeds. To achieve a joint staff, Nimitz essentially merged for meeting purposes, not location purposes, the two staffs. So the, uh, the Army took the lead in intel and logistics, and the G2 Army and the G4 Army became the lead, and the Navy sort of adapted to that. The Navy kept J1 plans and, uh, and uh, J3 operations, and the Army sort of adapted to that. Uh, one must be careful on how much you read into this. The Navy staff stayed uh, on Pearl Harbor. The Army staff was another location. I think it was Fort Chapter. I'm not positive about the location, but they were at different locations. So to the degree that they were joint, the respective components of the staff would meet for meetings and negotiate and then sort of get on with work but it was not truly a consolidated joint staff. But at the time, this was a major advance, uh, very friction prone, a uh, lot, uh, lot of, you know, tension in trying to make this work, but it was progress. And from this, we get the evolution of the joint staffs that we have today. We normally think of these as purple staffs, purple being a, uh, the perception is if you mix a lot of colors, you get purple. Of course, if you know much about colors, if you mix a lot of colors, you actually get brown. Uh, but the way it works is if you, the perception is, is if you mix green and blue or light blue, then you would get purple. So we refer to those as purple staffs uh, today. Sometimes we call purple staff a coalition staff, meaning multiple national, multinational as opposed to multi-service. Okay. This is Nimitz's POA. You can see on the left, the North Pacific, on the uh, right, the South Pacific, uh, U.S. Army's uh, Central uh, Pacific, uh, which is subordinate to POA. Uh, and then you see Fifth Fleet subordinate to that, that was under Admiral Nimitz. This is actually a line diagram for the Marianas campaign. This was a sort of force structure that Admiral Nimitz put together uh, this is pretty much in motion in 1943, and it will last through 1945. Okay. Of course, here you have the map again. You can see the red line that sort of laps the extent of the Japanese uh, uh, progress in, in, in invading or overrunning the Pacific. Uh, this is pretty much where it was stopped. Uh, it was stopped at Midway. Uh, in the uh, central area, uh, Alaska, in the Aleutians in the northern area, stopped at Guadalcanal and the Solomons in the southern area. And then from there, uh, we pushed back. And so that's about how far it got in 1942. And we spent 43, 44, and 45 pushing back until we took down China. Okay. After the war, the Army and the Navy tried to recover their assets. So the obsession with the Navy was to recover 7th Fleet from MacArthur. The obsession on the Army, and this is when the Army Air Force is part of the Army, wanted to recover all the Air Force. And uh, that lasted for about a year because it was a flawed concept. 1946, we restructured for peacetime unified commands. In this sense, they didn't uh, include much in the way of coalition. They were mainly uh, United States, so in this sense they were more multi-service than they were multinational. So in the Pacific, the Navy retained usually control of Pacific Command, which was based in Hawaii. It's always been based in Hawaii since, uh, since the beginning of World War II. Uh, for Japan, MacArthur stood up a command called Far East Command. And this was a unified command on par, not subordinate to Pacific uh, Command. So Nimitz's original uh, title as a unified commander during World War II was Pacific Ocean 
areas, POA. After World War II, starting in 1946, it becomes Pacific Command. So there's a slight change in both the, the term and the acronym, but there are, uh, PACOM is a direct uh, successor to POA. Uh, MacArthur's uh, command in SWAPA, as he moves forward, he essentially hands over most of the uh, uh, control of Australia, New Guinea, and the Solomons to the uh, uh, Australians and uh, New Zealanders, as he moves into the Philippines and eventually moves into uh, Japan. Japan becomes his base, but with that, he retains control or picks up control of Okinawa, uh, retains some control of the Philippines until it gets independence. And even then we have substantial uh, military bases in the Philippines and we have control of South Korea, which at that time was considered to be a bit of a uh, backwater. Of course, in 1950, uh, the North Korea will invade South Korea and will move into the Korean War, and of course, during that period, MacArthur will focus much of his force structure, Far East Command, as a unified command, on the uh, Korean Peninsula in terms of the Korean War. His base is essentially the American forces in Japan, which we are still in the process of occupying at that stage. So we have substantial military forces in uh, Japan. Uh, we also have forces in Okinawa. And you can see that he also has operational control or responsibility for Iwo Jima and uh, Guam. So that is Far East Command. Uh, in 1957, uh, as the Korean War somewhat stabilizes and we cease occupation of Japan, Okinawa, and the Philippines has gone uh, somewhat independent, Far East Command is disbanded and all of the area on the map there uh, moves under command of PACOM or Pacific Command. Okay. The next major event we have, uh, here's a blow up. This just shows some of the uh, air components that uh, MacArthur had under a Far East Command. Okay. Next major event that we have in uh, the Pacific Asia region, of course, is Vietnam. Vietnam, of course, starts with a military assistance team working out of the embassy, providing aid to uh, essentially South Vietnam after it's uh, divided after the uh, French period. Uh, this incrementally expands over the course of uh, the 1960s uh, to the point that uh, what's referred to as MACV, which was supposed to be military assistance, essentially becomes a field army. It was never numbered as a field army, but it ends up with uh, a large force structure. It's got a Marine, uh, amphibious force, it's got a uh, two army corps, and it, in uh, Westmoreland as the commander will pick up operational control of almost as many force structures that are essentially ARVIN, or the Army of uh, South Vietnam. Okay. During that period, MACV is not a unified command. It is arguably subordinate to PACOM. Okay. It has a lot of uh, autonomy, and in many respects, General Westmoreland reports directly to Washington. But on the line diagram, everything that you see inside of the uh, uh, Southeast Asia would be under the responsibility of Pacific Command, or PACOM, meaning that the uh, MACV was subordinate to, rather than on a par with, uh, PACOM, in some contrast to Far East Asia Command, uh, uh, correction, Far East Command under MacArthur being on a par with PACOM. Okay. Going into Desert Storm, uh, we had a command called Central Command uh, working out of Tampa that had responsibility for uh, uh, responding to the invasion of Kuwait. And that led to the formation of a naval command. Central Command did not have a significant naval command. So what took place is PACOM, through PAC Fleet, fielded a large task force, which arguably came out of 7th Fleet. And it took the 7th Fleet commander and his staff and uh, put that under control of General Schwarzkopf for the operation we now refer to as Desert Shield, subsequently Desert Storm. Um, 
That formation was listed as a CTF-150, but it was arguably 7th Fleet. And 7th Fleet was the numbered fleet under Pacific Fleet, which was subordinate to PACOM. So PACOM was arguably the force provider for the, the bulk of the naval forces, or certainly the command structure of the naval forces that would be involved in uh, Desert Shield, Desert Storm. Those forces didn't get a lot of uh, uh, acknowledgement in the press or even in most of the histories, but the naval formation fielded that went into the Gulf of uh, what we refer to as the Persian Gulf um, for Desert Shield, Desert Storm was the largest fielded Navy since World War II. Uh, it was a huge formation. It didn't do a lot of fighting because it was, you know, the Iraqis didn't have much in the way of a navy. There wasn't much to fight at sea, but they did go in and occupy a lot of forces. And and how that evolved brought to the attention of many people the need for more naval structure for Central Command. So when we go to Iraqi freedom about a decade later, we have recovered Fifth Fleet. Remember, Fifth Fleet was Admiral Spruance in Central Pacific uh, during, World, uh, during World War II. So it is, Fifth Fleet is reactivated, not as a key component of Pack Fleet, but is put under Central Command working out of the Indian Ocean. Okay. Again, this is a force structure that shows you U.S. Pacific Command, and again, we would call this Indo-PACOM today, with no change in the boundaries uh, of this. Uh, and that's the force structure that we relate to today for Indo-PACOM, or the ge geographic area. Okay, uh, this is a detailed map. Uh, it's a little hard to read, I apologize for that, but this shows you all the military bases that we have associated with PACOM. So you see there's a lot of bases on the west coast of the United States that are so associated with PACOM. We have bases in Hawaii, uh, several service uh, organizations in Hawaii. We have organizations in, in uh, Guam, um, in, uh, uh, we've got small bases on uh, Wake, and uh, Kwajalein. Uh, Kwajalein is actually an island that we take in World War II. We've kept it ever since. Uh, and it's still a military base with very few uh, civilians on Kwajalein. We have bases, of course, in Korea, quite a substantial force structure in Korea on Okinawa, Japan uh, proper. We have had forces on the Philippines. We took them off a while back and it looks like we're gonna put them back on. So we have a lot of bases in the Pacific under the control of PACOM. There's actually quite a few islands that the uh, Pacific Air Force uh, manages, which would be under PACOM. I'll point that out in a subsequent slide. Okay, now people ask, how does the State Department and our other agencies that have infrastructure overseas work into this? And as you can see, this is the area of uh, responsibility for the State Department. The boundaries are close, but they're not the same. There's a lot of political issues on that. There's a lot of issues, efforts to sort of resolve that. So the uh, State Department breaks the world down into regions, some of which align with the, uh, the Department of Defense Unified Command, some of which don't align. Um, and that's an issue that we continue to work with because a state, state Department region may saddle two different uh, geographic unified commands or vice versa, in which case a particular State Department regional component working out of the State Department, I guess a couple miles from here, would have to work with two unified commands. Or conversely, a unified command might have to work with two State Department geographic uh, commands. Okay. One of the issues that we talk about with some frequency today, and I assume this group is familiar with, uh, is the focus of PACOM in particular, Indo-PACOM, on the South China Sea with a focus on China. So uh, as many of you should be aware, uh, China claims a uh, large area in the South China Sea, essentially bounded by 
Japan and Korea, down to the Philippines, uh, inclusive of uh, Taiwan, and down in uh, most of the islands off of either uh, the Dutch Indies, where you can see the line, or uh, off of Vietnam. Uh, China is very possessive about this area, and as most of you would uh, should be aware, has built a number of bases, in some cases on little more than a, a shoal or a, uh, uh, a reef. Uh, China is very determined to dominate this area uh, in the South China Sea, and arguably the South China Sea includes the East uh, C2. So you can see, if you look at Korea at the top of the uh, map on the left and you follow it all the way down, that's the area that we refer to, which is arguably more than the South China Sea. Okay, The first island chain includes uh, Japan, uh, Okinawa, Taiwan, uh, the Western Philippines, Luzon, and Palawan mainly, uh, and goes down to uh, off of uh, Borneo and around to Vietnam. Okay, the second island chain goes from Japan over to Guam. You can see this on the better on the uh, diagram to the left, uh, and it goes down to essentially the uh, western edge of New Guinea. Uh, there's more islands involved there than what you see on the map. Uh, some of them are, are small. So uh, between uh, Guam and, and New Guinea is the uh, uh, the geographic area referred to as the Paulus, uh, in which uh, we have a particular island called Peleliu, uh, which the Marines took in uh, World War II. Uh, that would be on that line there, and that is something we consider part of the second island chain. So we look at these, the first island chain and the second island chain, it's a defensive barrier. Um, should a adversarial uh, relationship with China turn into a kinetic war or a fighting war. Um, the challenge to this is China, of course, has the bulk of its population close to the sea. Essentially, East China has probably got three quarters of the population, three quarters of the infrastructure, and most of the defense force structure. So China's capacity, either with naval, air, missile, or even ground forces to dominate the area of South China Sea is very convenient. It's very inconvenient for the United States and our allies uh, to match that. So there is a focus with trying to hold the islands on what's referred to as the first island chain to contain China should we uh, slip into some sort of uh, kinetic sort of uh, conflict. Uh, should that fail, then presumably we would rely on the second island chain to, con to contain China. Uh, and presumably, if we were trying to move back, then the second island chain would be the base to move back to the first island chain. Okay. And of course, <laughs> if the second island chain uh, fails, then we have a third island chain. And, uh, and that's essentially Alaska down to Hawaii, uh, and then further down to uh, past Australia. And then more recently, or I'm not sure when it was defined, uh, moving in the opposite direction, you have essentially what's referred to as the fourth island chain, which would essentially be the west coast of India down to several island groups uh, going south. Uh, it's, the fourth and the fifth island chain are rarely referenced in, uh, in any sort of discussion that I've encountered. The first and second are referenced with great frequency, the third uh, with some frequency. So military forces in PACOM think very much in terms of first island chain, second island chain, third island chain, because that's really the PACOM uh, uh, area of responsibility forward central and uh, potentially falling back or using uh, primarily uh, Hawaii, but other islands as a base, okay? So what does uh, PACOM look like today? Uh, so all the combatant commands have a fairly common structure. So starting with the joint staff in the Pentagon, we have a staff system called the J1234, which is Administration, Intelligence, Operations, and Logistics. 
That's what it was in World War I and World War II. Subsequently, the staffs have gotten bigger and fatter, uh, pros and cons with that. J5 is plans, J6 is communications, J7 is plans and policy, which is a, a different form of plans and policy actually, and J8 is uh, communications. Uh, Indo-PACOM as a unified command or a combatant command today has a comparable staff system, and we refer to that as the J staff system, uh, system too. So sometimes in the world that I live in, when somebody says, well, it was in J2, I have to say, which one? Uh, are we talk about the joint staff, which means the Pentagon, are we talking about a particular combatant command joint staff? And uh, right now we got six of them, and uh, arguably seven of them with uh, Spacecom, and then we have functional combatant commands. Uh, but the, all of these commands are multi-service. So we use the term J, meaning joint, for each one of the staff sections. So a J1 could be in the Pentagon, it could be in UCOM in Europe, it could be in SOUTHCOM, focus on South America, it could be uh, in PACOM. Uh, it's a useful system. Uh, it's often referred to as a Napoleonic system, which is an error, but that's the way most people refer to it. We did get this system from the French in World War I. We did not get it from Napoleon. A little bit of a pet rock on my part. Uh, subordinate to a unified command, you almost always have, so this is kind of generic, uh, you almost always have an Air Force command, an Army Command, a Navy Command, a Marine Command, and a Special Operations Command. So for Indo-PACOM, you have U.S. Air Force Pacific, often referred to as PAC-AP. Um, I got another slide, I'll blow that up. There's U.S. Army Pacific, which used to be a fairly uh, small command until about 10 or, 10 or 15 years ago, and the Army started to uh, plus that up a little bit. There used to be the senior army officer out there was a three-star. It's been a four-star for about 10 years now, and the army's constantly building force structure in the Pacific. Uh, the, the Navy still has packed fleet, uh, Pacific fleet in Hawaii. You know, that was out there before World War II. It was out there during World War II. It's been there uh, ever since. Before World War II, it was actually based in, I think it was San Diego in California, and it was moved to, to Hawaii just as World War II starts, and it's been there ever since. It is a big component in the Navy. Arguably, PAC fleet owns half the Navy in terms of the Navy platforms. Okay. Uh, the Marine Corps has a formation out there, Mar, Mar-4 PAC, which has two major Marine components that it uh, sustains uh, first uh, Marine amphibious, uh, Marine Expeditionary Force in Southern California, and third Marine Expeditionary Force in uh, Okinawa. Uh, and then there's a Special Forces, a Special Operations Command. Uh, tends to be a little bit Navy dominated in the PACOM, but they have uh, Army, Marine, Air Force, uh, Special Operations officers in it. Uh, so those are what we call the service components within a unified uh, correction combatant command today. Uh, every combatant command has service components and a service headquarters. They're not all the same size. They do tend to have uh, an officer of comparable rank. So except for special, uh, special operations and the Marines, most of the, the, the Air Force officer, the Army officer, and the Navy officer that are subordinate to Indo-PACOM are four-star uh, generals or admirals. The, the Marine is a three-star, and Special Operations Command, I think, is one-star right now. Okay. I mentioned before, come back to the fleets. Okay. So Indo-PACOM has subordinate to that Pacific Fleet. Pacific Fleet has 7th Fleet, which is based in Hawaii. It has 3rd Fleet, which is based in California. And if you look closely, that's a dotted line to 5th Fleet. So 5th Fleet works for CENTCOM. But 5th Fleet is based in the Gulf and by rain, and it has very, very few ships. If we need to plus up 5th Fleet under uh, Central Command for any sort of activity in the Gulf, and we do with some frequency, 
the assets normally come from Pacific Fleet. And Pacific Fleet would normally take them from either 7th Fleet or 3rd Fleet and send them to 5th Fleet. So there is a indirect relationship uh, with Pack Fleet and 5th Fleet. Otherwise, 7th Fleet and 3rd Fleet are subordinate to Pacific Fleet. The Pacific Fleet is a major component for the U.S. Navy. A, a four-star admiral that has the command of Pacific Fleet is a powerful guy. He is uh, he's a mainstream guy, and chances are his next job will be as the uh, combatant commander for Indo-PACOM. Okay. With some frequency, the commander of Pack Fleet would eventually be the CNO in the Navy. So this is a critical uh, position. It controls about half of the platforms in the Navy. A lot of ways to, uh, uh, to describe that. Uh, the other half are essentially controlled by a commander in Norfolk who essentially controlled something comparable for the Atlantic Fleet. Okay. Um, the Air Force. We got a lot of Air Force in the Pacific. So we have subordinate to Indo-PACOM PACAF, Pacific Air Forces. Uh, that's based in Hawaii. Uh, it, it has 7th Air Force in Japan, 5th Air, uh, correction, uh, uh, I didn't put Korea down there, I have an error on here. So 7th Air Force is in Japan, 5th Air Force is actually in Korea, uh, 11th Air Force is still in Alaska, in Alaska, and 13th Air Force is in Hawaii. 13th Air Force is the only Air Force that really doesn't own much in the way of aircraft. What 13th Air Force owns are a lot of bases. So it certainly uh, is responsible for Hickam Air Force Base in Hawaii, but it's also uh, responsible for bases that might be on Midway, uh, on Peleliu or the, the Paulas, uh, anything that we might stand up elsewhere, Kwajalein, uh, Guam, and, uh, uh, Guam would be Anderson Air Force Base. The so 13th Air Force owns more bases than it does aircraft. It can pick up control of aircraft, but usually it's sort of uh, bases. 11th, 5th, and 7th have uh, uh, Air Force wings under their control, uh, mainly fighter wings. Uh, sometimes a bomber wing would be under their operational control, but not not necessarily chopped to them. Most of our bomber forces are actually based in CONUS and would fly through and support a numbered air force, but usually don't chop to its control. Okay. Uh, if we go coalition, uh, then we take, and usually we would be the lead in a coalition. There's a couple of examples where we're not the lead, but most of the examples we are the lead. If we are the lead in a coalition, we take the air component and we refer to it as the air, uh, the combined joint force air uh, component command. Uh, if there's a land component and it's gonna be multinational, we refer to it as a coalition joint force land component command. And uh, naval force is, we call that the SIFMEC, that'd be the combined, uh, Coalition Joint Force Maritime Component Command, and then Special Forces, we call that a SIFSOC. So that's when we go coalition. We are not coalition on a regular basis in the Pacific. Uh, in UCOM, we have, of course, NATO. In the Pacific, for reasons that uh, are a little bit unique to the Pacific, a number of countries want to have a direct relationship with the United States but they're not crazy about having a multinational organization. So if we form a major component command uh, that's coalition-centric, it will probably be formed on short notice based on a particular situation. Whereas in NATO, that's essentially a standing coalition on a regular basis. And that's uh, in the, ready to go to... So, um, due to the limited time, we'll just take three questions. And um, if you have further questions, you can um, grab it in the hall. Yes. Joshua Gensky, Director of Tapestry Officers for Accomplishments and Senator Rogers. Um, I wonder if you could speak a little bit more about the, the joint component aspect. 
speak a little more about the joint component aspect. You touched on the coalition element, but you were alluding to the fact that there are multinational corporations, there are embedded offices within the command. Could you go into that a little bit more? The, the joint, by joint, we mean multi-service. Yes, multi-service. Okay. Components where if we look for an office, for example, we're going to have Australia and Queensland Australia. Okay. Operation. When we're talking multinational, we call that coalition. So do, do you mean? Yes, we speak to the more multinational coalition aspect. Okay. On the coalition issue, uh, we have a variety of relationships with countries that are in the Pacific, from Australia up to uh, Japan and uh, South Korea. Uh, there is a organization that's multinational called ASEAN. Actually, we're not in it. Uh, we're, we're, we're kind of a, a uh, we have a, kind of a rep to the meeting. It's not very, uh, they don't have something comparable to chapter five where an attack upon one is an attack upon all, which we have within NATO. So ASEAN is sort of a, a uh, collective group that trains a little bit together, they, they have meetings and so forth, uh, but our relationship in the Pacific tends to be bilateral. So we have a relationship with South Korea, we have a relationship with Japan, we have a relationship, uh, it's been off and on, but it's coming back in the Philippines. We have a very fragile, uh, but improving relationship with uh, Vietnam. Um, we have a relationship with Taiwan. Uh, we don't have a treaty with Taiwan. We do have a treaty with Japan. Uh, I'm pretty sure we have a treaty with the Philippines. I'm not sure what its status is. It's kind of uh, ebbed and flowed a, a little bit. We have no treaty with uh, Vietnam. Um, we have no treaty uh, with the Dutch Indies. So uh, technically, you will hear our politicians refer to our allies. In a formal sense, an ally is a another country with which we have a formal defense treaty. So South Korea is an ally. Japan is an ally. Vietnam is not an ally. We refer to, uh, we refer to a country that we identify with and we work with that is not uh, an ally, is a friend. So we have friends and we have allies. For example, our politicians refer to Israel as an ally all the time. To my knowledge, we have no treaty with Israel. So technically, Israel is not an ally in a formal sense. It's a, it's a friend, and we have a highly developed uh, military relationship with Israel, but technically it's not an ally. So when, when you're talking about the coalition issues in the Pacific, um, from a legal or international law standpoint, uh, we have a number of allies, that, that means we have a defense treaty with them. And that usually means is that we will cooperate if one is attacked, okay? If we don't have a defense treaty with a particular country, then we have no formal obligation to help them if they're attacked. So we don't have a defense treaty with Taiwan. And um, it's not probable that we're gonna have one. So if Taiwan is attacked, it's, uh, it's to be determined. Is, to what degree will we help uh, Taiwan? If Japan's attacked, if South Korea's attacked, we have war plans. Uh, we have highly developed war plans for Korea. We don't talk about them as much as we used to, but we used to talk about them all the time, but certainly in uh, my circle. But South Korea is definitely an ally. We definitely have a defense plan with them. We have forces there. We have a plan to come together and fight. But our relationship with Korea is bilateral. It's not truly multinational. Uh, it was during the Korean War, but uh, but not not so much now. Does that help? Hi, Joanna Grignola. Given the uh, perilous condition, the situation in Asia now, um, and as you said, we have we have these relationships with, with these different countries, but have we had any training exercises with them? And if they did, if we do have we train with allies and we train with friends so we train with israel uh we train with allies in nato we train with south korea we train with japan 
Uh, we've actually got quite a bit of training going on uh, with Taiwan right now. It's very low key. Some of it's classified, some of it's not so classified. Uh, but we've got a lot of people going over there, so we are training with them. To my knowledge, we have no uh, uh, training of significance with uh, Vietnam, uh, but we are working to develop a relationship with Vietnam. Vietnam's position with the border with China is their, their tendency, or this is what I'm told, this is not my specialty, is if China has a meeting with us, a correction, if uh, Vietnam has a meeting with us, they go have one with China. If they have one with China, they come have one for us. They're trying to not be neutral. Neutral would be wrong term here. They're just trying to achieve a balance between their relationship with China and their relationship with us. Uh, if China causes them some uh, drama, like uh, messes with one of their islands or something like that, they'll start a relationship with us. I think we've had one or two port visits where a ship came in and uh, just loitered in the harbor for, for a couple days and left. That's not really training, but that that is a relationship. Yes, sir. The Wall Street Journal last year published back to back about the middle land strategy. Do you know about that? Say, say again. The land strategy. Which? Rim land. Uh, I'm not familiar with that particular term. So you talk about first island chain, second island well, chain? Well, it was, it was because we had to rapidly form a coalition mm. and we had to preposition things very rapidly. And the Wall Street Journal in August said that that's the way to protect. And that's the area I've worked in, is prepositioning assets for non-kinetic stock. Okay. So the question is, are we doing something? Obviously, we're in Taiwan. So that tells me that if you preposition, you hinder aggression. Not to hedge on you too much, but I did open say my focus is history <laughs> and not so much contemporary. So you may know a great deal more about the contemporary than I do. I know secondhand through my students who are military officers that we are sending teams of various types uh, to Taiwan. Um, I'm aware that we have special forces uh, going there probably to do uh, tactical training. I'm sure that we've got somebody in the cyber world that's got some connection. I can't speak to it because I don't know anything about it, but I'm sure that we have that. I do know that we are less and less discreet with the people we, we send to Taiwan, whether it's somebody from Congress or whether it's somebody in the military. We used to be very discreet, perhaps less so now. And I'm not sure if that's intentional or unintentional, but if you have more and more people go, you can't, you can't be too discreet. So, but otherwise, I suspect you know more than I do.